Chapter Eighteen of the Shadow by Arthur Stringer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen. It was six weeks later that a slender-bodied young Nicaraguan known as Doctor Alfonso Sedeno, his right to that title resulting from four years of medical study in Paris, escorted into Bluefields the flaccid and attenuated shadow of Never Fail Blake. Dr. Sedeno explained to the English shipping firm to whom he handed over his patient that the Signor Americano had been found in a dying condition, ten miles from the camp of the rubber company for which he acted as surgeon. The Signor Americano was apparently a prospector who had been deserted by his partner. He had been very ill, but a few days of complete rest would restore him. The sea voyage would also help. In the meantime, if the shipping company would arrange for credit from the hotel, the matter would assuredly be put right, later on, when the necessary dispatches had been returned from New York. For three weeks of torpor, Blake sat in the shadowy hotel, watching the torrential rains that deluged the coast. Then, with the help of a cane, he hobbled from point to point about the town, quaveringly inquiring for any word of his lost partner. He wandered listlessly back and forth, mumbling out a description of the man he sought, holding up strangers with his tremulous noted inquiries, peering with weak and watery eyes into any quarter that might house a fugitive. But no hint or word of Binhart was to be gleaned from those wanderings, and at the end of a week he boarded a fruit-steamer bound for Kingston. His strength came back to him slowly during that voyage, and when he landed at Kingston he was able to walk without a stick. At Kingston, too, his draft on New York was finally honoured. He was able to creep out to Constant Spring, to buy new clothes, to ride in a carriage when he chose, to eat a white man's food again. The shrunken body under the flaccid skin slowly took on some semblance of its former ponderosity, the watery eyes slowly lost their dead and vapid stare, and with increase of strength came a corresponding increase of mental activity. All day long he kept turning things over in his tired brain. Hour by silent hour he would ponder the problem before him. It was more rumination than active thought. Yet up from the stagnating depths of his brooding would come an occasional bubble of inspiration. Binhart, he finally concluded, had gone north. It was the natural thing to do. He would go where his hall was hidden away. Sick of unrest, he would seek peace. He would fall a prey to man's consuming hunger to speak with his own kind again. Convinced that his enemy was not at his heels, he would hide away somewhere in his own country, and once reasonably assured that his enemy had died, as he had left him to die, Binhard would surely remain in his own land, among his own people. Blake had no proof of this. He could not explain why he accepted it as fact. He merely wrote it down as one of his hunches, and with his old-time faith in the result of that subliminal reasoning, he counted what remained of his money, paid his bills, and sailed from Kingston northward as a steerage passenger in a United Fruit steamer bound for Boston. As he had expected, he landed at this New England port without detection, without recognition. Six hours later he stepped off a train in New York. He passed out into the streets of his native city like a ghost emerging from its tomb. There seemed something spectral in the very chill of the thin northern sunlight, after the opulent and oppressive heat of the tropics. A gulf of years seemed to lie between him and the actuality so close to him. 
A desolating sense of loneliness kept driving him into the city's noisier and more crowded drinking places, where, under the lash of alcohol, he was able to wear down his hot ache of deprivation into a dim and dreary regretfulness. Yet the very faces about him still remained phantasmal. The commonplaces of street life continued to take on an alien aspect. They seemed vague and far away, as though viewed through a veil. He felt that the world had gone on, and in going on had forgotten him. Even the scraps of talk, the talk of his own people, fell on his ear with a strange sound. He found nothing companionable in that canyon of life and movement known as Broadway. He stopped to stare with haggard and wistful eyes at a theatre front buoyed with countless electric bulbs, remembering the proud moment when he had been cheered in a box there, for in his curtain speech the author of the melodrama of crime, being presented, had confessed that the inspiration and plot of his play had come from that great detective Never Fail Blake. He drifted on down past the cafés and restaurants, where he had once dined and supped so well, past the familiar haunts where the appetite of the spirit for privilege had once been as amply fed as the appetite of the body for food. He sought out the darker purlieus of the lower city, where he had once walked as a king and dictated deadlines and distributed patronage. He drifted into the underworld haunts, where his name had at one time been a terror. But now, he could see, his approach no longer resulted in that discreet scurry to cover, that feverish scuttling away for safety, which marks the black snake's progress through a gopher village. When he came to Centre Street, at the corner of Broom, he stopped and blinked up at the great grey building wherein he had once held sway. He stood, stoop-shouldered and silent, staring at the green lamps, the green lamps of vigilance that burned as a sign to the sleeping city. He stood there for some time, unrecognised, unnoticed, watching the platoons of broad-chested flatties, as they swung out and off to their midnight patrols, marking the plainly clad elbows as they passed quietly up and down the great stone steps. He thought of Copeland and the Commissioner, and of his own last hour at headquarters, and then his thoughts went on to Binhart, and the trail that had been lost, and the task that stood still ahead of him and with that memory awakened the old sullen fires, the old dogged and implacable determination. In the midst of those reviving fires a new thought was fixed, the thought that Binhart's career was in some way still involved with that of Elsie Verriner. If any one knew of Binhart's whereabouts, he remembered, it would surely be this woman, this woman on whom, he contended, he could still hold the iron hand of incrimination. The first move would be to find her, and then, at any cost, the truth must be wrung from her. Never fail Blake, from the obscure downtown hotel, into which he crept like a sick hound shunning the light, sent out his call for Elsie Verriner. He sent his messages to many and varied quarters, feeling sure that some groping tentacle of inquiry would eventually come in touch with her. Yet the days dragged by, and no answer came back to him. He chafed anew at this fresh evidence that his power was a thing of the past, that his word was no longer law. He burned with a sullen and self-consuming anger, an anger that could neither be expressed in action nor relieved in words. Then, at the end of a week's time, a note came from Elsie Verriner. It was dated and postmarked Washington, and in it she briefly explained that she had been engaged in departmental business, that she expected to be in New York on the following Monday. 
Blake found himself unreasonably irritated by a certain crisp assurance about this note, a certain absence of timorousness, a certain unfamiliar tone of independence. But he could afford to wait, he told himself. His hour would come later on. And when that hour came, he would take a crimp out of this calm-eyed woman, or the heavens themselves would fall. And, finding further idleness unbearable, he made his way to a drinking-place not far from that junction of First Street and the Bowery, known as Suicide Corner. In this new world, Cabaret de Neant, he drowned his impatience of soul in a Walpurgis night of five-cent beer and fusel-oiled whiskey. But his time would come, he repeated drunkenly, as he watched with his haggard hound's eyes the meretricious and tragic merriment of the revellers about him. His time would come. End of chapter 18